Hi, this is Ray Barry, and welcome to the Audio Wave Cafe podcast. On this episode, my guest is songwriter and music producer Dave Pepper. First, I talk about current music news and views, and I'll be shining a spotlight on David Bowie's 2016 album, Black Star. Uh, let's move on. A California-based rock band called Poe the Passenger have released an AI, that's artificial intelligence, generated song called Hologram. The band programmed a bot to listen to 1,000 hours of Linkin Park and Imagine Dragons music. The bot then generated a song based on what it had learned. I should think it overheated and blew up. Anyhow, the song has had almost 4 million views on TikTok. On YouTube, I have listened to an AI-generated music track composed by Iva, that's A-I-V-A, a company that created the world's first AI non-human generated composition. The instrumental track is called On The Edge, and it's interesting stuff. You too can create your own AI-generated music with a free account. Check it out. I think AI-generated music is currently a bit of a novelty but one day involve it to something influential and divisive and a potential to stir up a whole bunch of problems in the music industry. The Michael Jackson estate is about to sell off half its holdings in his music catalogue in a deal worth around $900 million. Surely this has got to be the biggest music catalogue sale ever. Dwarfing Bruce Springsteen's sell-off valued at $600 million. And Jackson's estate is only selling half the catalogue. I remember when Michael Jackson snapped up the Beatles music catalogue outbidding Paul McCartney and I don't think McCartney ever forgave him. And the awards keep coming for Harry Styles. It wasn't enough to win Album of the Year and Best Pop Vocal Album at the Grammys for Harry's House, his latest album. But he also cleaned up at the Brit Awards ceremony at the O2 Arena in London with four awards. I've mentioned Harry Styles in particular because his Love on Tour show starts off in Coventry on the 22nd and 23rd of May at the Building Society Arena. After the demise of One Direction in 2016, Harry Starr just keeps rising. Finally, HMV, a UK-based music and entertainment retailer, has turned a pre-tax profit of almost £2 million since going into administration in 2019, and much of that success comes from vinyl record sales. Seems most top artists today make vinyl records a key part of their album promotions. Oh, and HMV have also launched 1921 records, a new record label, with owner Doug Putman saying, it's the company's mission to get more fantastic albums by debut artists into the homes of music fans. 1921 Records' first signing was singer-songwriter India Arkin. Time will tell if the label does stick to its mission statement in signing up new artists. I should check them out at the end of the year. Yeah, I'll do that. A big welcome to my guest, expat guitarist, songwriter and music producer, Dave Pepper. Dave, thanks for joining me today. Hello, Ray. Great to uh, well, be talking to you, but seeing you. It's great. Yeah, great to meet you too. You're talking to me from sunny Spain. What's the temperature like at the moment? Well, today it's 20-something. I don't know if it's uh, centigrade or Fahrenheit. But it's nice, blue sky. I've got the windows open. Uh, in, in, a, in a top room, I use it as my... Uh, I teach now. I've got uh, six schools I teach at, so I use it as my prep room. But it's a nice big open room, sun coming through, birds singing. 
Lovely. <laughs> I've, I've got sun streaming through, birds singing, but it's 60 degrees. I can, I can remember that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What got you interested in becoming a guitarist? Well, first off the bat, it was, um, it was the Beatles, John Lennon's rhythm playing. However, a lot of people probably don't know, piano is my first instrument. I um, was brought up in Wyking Avenue in Coventry. And, uh, Mum and Dad both played the piano. Mum could read music. Dad played piano and played the blues harp. So at a very early age, I was going out to clubs with my dad, believe it or not. He'd get up, sing, play his blues harp. And we had a pianola. You know, pianola is uh, the one where you have the pedals and it's got the sheet music. So even at two or three, I'd be pushing the pedals, blah, 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 and messing around with the piano keys. Next door just happened to be a piano teacher, a woman called Ivy. And so when I was about, I don't know, two, three, I was really, really young. I started piano lessons um, with Ivy. But at the same time, at that age, mum and dad had a little record player and they brought home Jerry Lee Lewis. And that's really what got me into music full stop. It was a 78. And even at two or three, I remember jumping onto the sideboard, playing this record. And it was a record player that had those, you know, the needles you could take out. <laughs> I think I've seen one in a museum. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm showing my age. So, so I, I used to change the mirrors, but I had Jerry Lee Lewis and um, Atwell, something Atwell she was called, fantastic pianist. But Jerry Lee Lewis, I used to then go on the piano and bang away at it. And then mum sent me next door for the lessons. So it's Jelly Lee Lewis that got me into music, piano, and it still is. I still play lots of piano. I've got pianos and synths uh, here. I've always played piano. But guitar, um, I didn't actually get into till I was about five or six years old. In Coventry, you were in many bands, Calvary, Team 23, Excerpt, Blitzkrieg Zone 2020. Are there any standout bands you enjoy playing in? Yeah, Excerpts. Um, that was my first real band and we used to rehearse below frames they were a travel agent did lots of demos then we just did prestigious gigs london marquee camden whatever i was only like 19 or 20 so that that was the first opening with blitzkrieg zone a guy called barry walker who knew uh, the music center for some reason he just said oh uh, i'll record that 21 boy and uh, teenage rocket age and put it out as a single for you you know, this had just happened. So we went to his house. He was in a band called Snacky. So we went to his home studio, recorded 21 Boy and Teenage Rocket Age. I think he paid for the, the white label or put money towards it anyway because um, we released that and that sold good. They used to have a, an alternative chart and we were number two under New Order. This is before we'd even done a bloody tour or anything. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. In 1990, you left the UK to go and live in America. Why was that? Well, because uh, I'd finished with the uh, Blitzkrieg Zone. I was always dabbling with kick cars, and I had like I think I had three cars out by then, but I didn't make any money. And by chance, I'd started doing a bit of side work with Real Morgans, because the other cars I did were my own design, but loosely Morgan, because way, way back, I worked for Burlington Kick Car Company in Lennington. So I knew about Morgans, as it was my hobby. And a guy in America called Wynne Sharples, and he just gave me a call one day. He said, do you fancy a work permit and helping me out in the States? Yeah, right. So I flew across there, 
So I worked there for two years, restoring and rebuilding Morgans. I was still doing my music. My first love is American music. So I was in heaven. Made loads of friends, got the permit. Uh, yeah, and then just started jamming and whatever with, with American musicians, which is, I, I loved it. And I started doing just lots of gigs, open mics and stuff like that. At one time, you toured the States with a Dave Pepper band, and you've also played in wineries. Playing Because I was playing lots of bars all, all over Virginia, I just met lots of people. And one time I met someone that had a winery. Just said, would you consider playing there as Muzak? You know, so I did. And uh, at that time, you're talking about, this is still mid-90s. There weren't many people playing in wineries, full stop. I'd just sit in the background playing covers, my own stuff, whatever I wanted. And it started off with one winery. And because it attracted people, because I'd do on my MySpace and then I'd do flyers. So this one winery would uh, promote their wines but having music and very few of the other wineries were doing that. And as soon as they found out, suddenly I started getting lots of bookings. And it, it was actually there I learned how to play flamenco because I had to change from being like a, a rock guy to a music sort of guy. And I found I was twiddling around sometimes. And then I heard of a guy, I don't know if you've heard of him, Esteban. He's, a, he's an American. Uh, Colombian drug runner. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, he, he's Esteban. That's his name. Oh, okay. and, he, and he does... He, 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 did, he, did, he did flamenco. So I used to, at winery gigs, you know, uh, you haven't got to be perfect all the time because most of the time people weren't there to listen to you. They were there to drink the wine. So I, so I just taught myself flamenco while I was playing. You know, they'd say, I'll play the Beatles because I was a Brit. They loved the fact that I could play Here Comes the Sun and, you know, I had the accent. And, and then I used to write songs. I think I had six tracks of my own I'd released as flamenco. I mean, I'm playing it here, my flamenco, and they love it. You know, I do stuff I'm not that keen on, which is old school rock, I guess. But they love it here. They just love it because they're deprived, you know. In 2011, after more than 20 years, you returned to the UK. Did you tire of living the American dream? No. You you won't be the first to hear this, but you'll be one of the few is I got deported. Didn't you know that? <laughs> no, not at all. No, a lot of people don't. I was, I was still playing the wineries and gigging. Yeah, I did one show at the winery, and then I did the second gig in a village or town called Percival. Played that gig, drunk as a skunk, and my then-girlfriend said, you don't want to drive home, Dave. Of course, I got in my truck. I got pulled over. And they pulled out a cell phone, uh, the police. I put my fingers on it. And they went, oh, you're an alien, aren't you? So they caught me, and then I went to the, the local jail. But I knew, because I was a local, I knew all the officers. I thought I was going to be in and out, and obviously I wasn't. Came back, no money. I'd lost my house, my cars, you name it. Country song, right there. A friend of a friend got me a lift from Heathrow to, to my home, which is where my father had died. My mum was still at the house. I didn't really want to be back in England, and it was a, it was a bit of a shock. And living in a different country for that long, to be honest, I've still got more friends in America, genuine friends, than I have in the UK. When you returned to the UK, you bought a 70-foot boat and made it your home. Why was that? The reason for that is, after getting back, after living on the Shenandoah Mountains for so long, you know, I couldn't stay. Well, I, I didn't really want to be back in England, and it was a, it was a bit of a shock after being so long in America. I'm a, I've always been a bit of an awkward person, I, I guess, but I'm still even more awkward. My take on it is because I was in America for so long, it changed my head. You know, you, you, we're taught in England certain things. And living in a different country for that long, I look at it as it's a learning curve. So I'd hear things about England that I'd never known at school, friends that didn't like Americans. I'd, I'd say, well, you, until you go there you know, and live, you don't understand. You know, To be honest, I've still got more friends in America genuine friends than I have in the UK. 
and probably a, you know a few more in Spain. They're all Spanish, obviously. Uh, so when I got home, I was very, very depressed. Mum said, "Look, Dave, you realise the house is ours now. Your dad's uh, passed away." I said, "Oh, really?" She said, "What do you really want to do?" So I said, "Look, we need a car. Let's let's start getting things proactive here." So Mum said, "I'll buy buy us a car." And one day we we drove to Braunston for no reason, just the fact that in my head I just wanted to get away. I didn't know anything about canal boats, boats, but we went into this lovely old country pub, the Plough, and we're sitting in there. And I started to talk to this guy, and it ended up he lived on a boat. I went, really? Boats? Where? And he took me to Braunston Marina, and on the side were their boats. I made friends with this girl. She took me on a boat the next day, and that was it. So I went back home and said, Mum, can we sell the house and buy a boat? I said, I'll make sure we get a good one because you're as old as you are. So we sold the house. And uh, I'd found a boat, you know, she loved it. It was the best time of her life. And just before she died, two years ago, she said to me, can we go and live on a boat again, Dave? But she loved it. She loved the life. And I enjoy, I met, I'm still friends with her, most of those people. Uh, oh, yeah. And I met my wife on a boat over there as well, Stella. We were at, uh, my friend said, you'll never meet anyone on a boat. And uh, we met before I got a boat. And then and her and her ex moored at the marina I was working at. They split up. And the rest is sort of history, as I say. And now she's over here with me. We've got our own farmhouse and et cetera. Tell me about your home recording studio. The, st- the studio is essentially, it's for me, it's a song. I call it a songwriting studio. Uh, when my mum passed away, I put some um, uh, partitioning up and made a, I guess it's one, is it? I'm just looking in there probably. Mm. 10 by 6. So it's not big. Maybe, no, maybe 12 by 6. So it's small, more as a writing studio, but I've got my synths, uh, got a multi-track in there and all the effects, rack effects, all that sort of stuff. It's really for songwriting, but what I do is we've got a stable at the back of the studio. So when I've got the musicians in, they just go in there or outside. I've got a bar and an outside kitchen. Because we're in the middle of nowhere, you don't need soundproof or anything like that. You just might be kit up in the, you're normally in the bar or on the patio. But mainly I use it for my writing. And then once I've written, I storyboard it. And then... Uh, Upload the video and the song onto, onto YouTube. Tell me about storyboarding. It's once once I've written the, lyri- the lyrics to the song and recorded the song and it's finished and mastered, then I put it onto a onto my video editing software, and then with the lyrics, I do rough drawings. It's like making a film, you know, of what I want to uh, emphasise the song structure, the song lyrics. You know, and then I then I I get the tracks. There's various sites you can go to uh, to download clips I need for the video to sort of match the lyrics. I mean, I haven't quite got it down off back because I'm not a professional. When I mix them all together and and video turn transitions, so I transition from one line to another along with clips of the video. So it sort of is as smooth as it can be for the song I've just written. It's still a learning curve for me, but I'm. I'm loving it. What's the uh, video editing software that you use? It's called Shotcut. It's got to be the best free uh, software in the market. It's a very hard learning curve. You know, we I used to use a thing called Wondershare. It was 35 euros a year, I think. And that's all done for you. So your introductions, your, your transitions, your, your, your filters, it's all done for you. But with this, you've got to learn it. However, the learning is, even to this morning, I watch learning videos every day. It's amazing. I mean, if you want to, if you want to start doing videos, I couldn't recommend Shotcut more. And there's so many tutorials on YouTube. It's not easy. I've got to be honest. It's it's great fun there. Do you have any uh, interesting events or projects coming up? Yeah, lots. Um, obviously, I, I do a fair amount of solo gigs here anyway, including my flamenco that I play now. So I mix that with the uh, my original stuff with the the covers. 
So I've got a lot of events, probably some more fiestas. They're good paying gigs. When fiestas start, you, you're non-stop, really. It's, it's from there yeah, from roughly end of May, I guess, June. So I'll be busy then. Uh, then I've got a, a 10-track album I'm working on as we speak. And I hope to release that probably in a couple of months' time. Again, back on to Spotify or a, I've got to find some sort of media thing to do it with, along with my YouTube videos. And then the two musicians I'm using at the moment, great drummer and bassist in a local town called Alcala. I'm hoping to actually take a full band out again. There's a possibility, uh, Ted Duggan, Horace and Steve's band, Dirt Road. Dirt Road band. Yeah, I think they're coming back to Spain because I want to try and do some support slots with them. So uh, that's, that's what I'd like. I, I want to get out there with a band again, if I can, um, and open for uh, other bands at some of these clubs that are sprouting up. Well, also, we're, we're putting the, our house on the market because we've got enough money collaterally now. We can move to the coast. So, and, and from, from me as a music guy, Stella uh, does a lot of art stuff. And I'm also an English teacher now, so there's a lot more openings for us both if we go down to the coast. There's a lovely um, place in the, in the costas called Torox. It's only 10 minutes from the beach, so that's our next goal, hopefully by the end of the year. Yeah, that sounds great, Dave. Finally, do you ever plan to come back to the UK? The Spanish word is nunca, which is never. <laughs> <laughs> nunca. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I'll come back. I've got, I, I've got a very small family over there, and I, I will. But to be honest, even when I was in America, I never really wanted to come back. It, it, it might sound horrible, disrespectful, but it's just my life, isn't it? You know, I've been to America and I loved it there. Now we're in Spain, and, and even Stel doesn't want to go back. You know, she's she gets jobs here. We speak Spanish. We're sort of integrated, and and it's it's our home. Well, this is a good moment to wrap up this session. Dave, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for being my guest. Yeah, pleasure. Pleasure. Love talking, Ray. All the best. On the 7th of December 2015, David Bowie made his last public appearance at the opening night of his musical Lazarus in New York. Although initial reviews were mixed, he was happy and looking forward to the release of what would be his final studio album, Black Star, on the 8th of January 2016, his birthday. Upon release, reviews of the album were mixed, especially with the news media critics loving and disliking it in equal measure. Then, just two days later, on the 10th of January, everything changed. David Bowie had died of liver cancer at his home in New York. The seven-track album was recorded at the Magic Shop Recording Studio, and also at the Human Worldwide Studio in New York and produced by Tony Visconti, Bowie's longtime collaborator. Bowie dispensed with musicians that had worked with him on previous albums, and instead brought in New York jazz quartet, the Donnie McCaslin Group. Bowie had been so impressed with the experimental jazz performed by the quartet at the 55 Bar in Greenwich Village, New York, that he wanted them to help him develop the songs for the album, which was recorded between January and March 2015. Bowie's sudden death had sent shockwaves around the world, he had kept his illness a secret except for a few of those close to him, such as Tony Visconti and producer of the Lazarus video, Robert Fox. At the time of recording the album, the musicians in the jazz quartet didn't even know he was ill. Music videos were produced for only two tracks, Lazarus and Backstar, and many now interpreted new meanings, signs and predictions in what observers described as unsettling videos. The album cover featured a simple Black Star, produced by Jonathan Barnbrook, who also claimed there were hidden surprises in the vinyl album's artwork. 
There's one interesting point I will mention. Bowie was a lifetime fan of Elvis Presley, and coincidentally they both shared the same birthday. Elvis once released a little-known track called Black Star, and in the first verse the words are, Every man is a black star, a black star over his shoulder. And when a man sees his black star, he knows his time, his time has come. In 2016, Black Star reached number one in the album charts in the UK and America, and certifying gold and platinum in both countries. At the 59th Grammy Awards ceremony in 2017, the album won five Grammys. Today, Tony Visconti still works hard producing records in New York, as does Donnie McCaslin with a new album released this year. Unfortunately, the 55 bar closed down in 2022. Black Star turned out to be David Bowie's final chapter in an illustrious career, spanning almost 50 years, and it's still written about and discussed by fans and music critics alike. He couldn't have planned it better. Or maybe he did. Coming up is a song written and recorded by Dave Pepper, Live Life. Look at 
Life by Dave Pepper, and thanks so much for being my guest. On the next episode, my guest is singer-songwriter Ruth Kelly. I'll also be bringing you music news and views, and I'll be shining a spotlight on the song Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen. I think that's it for now. Yeah, it is. I'm done. Till next time.